Good morning. Welcome to this Syracuse Center of Excellence and today's Research and Technology Forum. I'm Eric Schiff, Interim Director of the Center and the moderator for today. Many schools are preparing today for students and teachers to return to classrooms this fall after six months of hiatus. Education experts recommend that classroom teaching resume as soon as possible and as soon as it's safe. But how safe will reopening be? How safe is safe enough? Scientists are now confident that COVID-19 spreads through the air when an infected person breathes, coughs, or mostly unfortunately, sings. Infected, non-symptomatic students are going to be in our classrooms. How can we minimize the risk? The first line of defense is gonna be masks and social distancing. If perfectly implemented, these two measures very substantially reduce the risk of transmitting COVID-19, but perfection with students is an elusive goal. So today's forum is concerned with the second line of defense. How can we keep the amount of airborne virus in classrooms low, even in the presence of an infected person? So I'm going to ask a series of questions to three expert panelists. One panelist, Brendan Hall, is unfortunately unable to join us today due to a family emergency. Afterward, after the series of questions that uh, sort of set the stage, we're asking our panelists to respond to your, the listeners' questions. Please send this in to us at any time during the forum using the online connection you have to the forum. So first of all, joining us today is Jensen Song, professor of engineering at Syracuse University. Jensen is known around the world as an expert on indoor air quality. So Jensen, can you just start us off with an example of airborne transmission of the virus, a particular example where one person carrying COVID-19 has infected many other healthy people. Jensen. Thank you, Eric. Uh, the, there's a couple of examples that uh, like in the bus, in the choir, and uh, in, the, uh, in the restaurants. I think the, the most convincing example to me for airborne transmission of the virus is right in the restaurants. This is a restaurant in the Guangzhou city of China. And there's a, a 18 total of 18 tables, and the three of them got infected. These three tables, and the middle table has a one virus carrier, the original virus carrier, that he not only infected the four people on the same table, but also infected uh, five people in the two other tables, one on the left and one on the right. Now, these, the three tables, the people in the three tables are all came from different families. So they had no contact before, during, and after, after the instance. So I think, and the researchers that uh, went back to the restaurant to see what's happening to this distribution, it turned out in this particular space has very low ventilation. And typically, we require four liters, at least four liters per second. And that place has only less than one liters per second of ventilation. And they also look at the air distribution. So the, uh, they're actually using the computational fluid dynamics and to simulate the airflow patterns. So the spread of the virus appears to be consistent 
And this time we see uh, airflow patterns. I think this is one of the cases that I would say it's fairly convincing that uh, it's quite probable that uh, this virus can transmit uh, uh, airborne through the airborne uh, route. And of course, you know, in theory, we know that uh, people, when people talk and when people cough uh, and sing, we generate aerosols. And we're talking about aerosols. These are the fine particulates which are less than five microns. So these particles transfer, can stay in air for a long time and it can, can flow with the air. Therefore, if you don't have enough ventilation to dilute it, uh, airborne transmission quite possible. Thanks very much, Jensen. That's uh, excellent. Um, our second panelist is Michael Wetzel, who's the president and CEO of uh, Air Innovations. Air Innovations is a Syracuse company that designs and manufactures systems for managing ventilation and air quality in hospitals, biotech laboratories, and other industries. Mike, we've heard a lot from Governor Cuomo and others that COVID transmission is much lower outside than inside buildings, which is why restaurants in Syracuse are now serving customers outdoors as much as they can. What's your explanation for the difference in infection risk when you're indoors versus outdoors? Okay, thank you, thank you, Eric. Um, you know, the, the data and uh, the guidance from the CDC, Department of Health, um, always talk about proximity and duration to an infected person. Your, your likelihood of contracting the disease will always come down to proximity and duration. I, I actually know from personal experience, I had exposure to somebody who was tested positive. Very first question Department of Health asked me is, were you within six feet for 15 minutes or more unprotected without masks? And so um, it really comes down to um, how much uh, you get exposed to a direct concentration of, um, of the contagion. Uh, indoor air quality, since, since the 1970s, uh, the energy crisis of the 1970s, we've worked really hard about making our buildings extremely energy efficient. And as a result, we make them tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, there's very little leakage anymore in a modern building. Many modern office buildings don't even have windows that open that could otherwise leak. And so we have a high reliance on our mechanical systems now to ventilate our spaces, uh, both to give us adequate air exchanges through the room, mixing of the air, running it through filters, and also to bring in fresh air um, to dilute gases and, uh, and contagions like COVID-19. Um, you know, just a typical indoor air is gonna, how many air exchanges you have is gonna be dependent on when your building was built, but um, it's suffice it to say, it's probably in the five to 10 air changes an hour. It might even be less. If you're in a really old building, you might not have any air changes an hour um, to help um, control and disperse particles, including COVID. And fresh air exchange is only gonna be a fraction of that. Take that to the outside, and even in a light breeze, you could have hundreds of air exchanges per hour. Even in no breeze, because you're not confined, your plume is gonna rise and it's gonna dissipate into the atmosphere. And so very quickly, um, COVID is dis dissipated in, in an outdoor environment, um, uh, radically different than, than an indoor contained environment uh, that we'll ever make an indoor environment. Um, and the data from China um, even shows that there are very few cases of transmission outdoors. Um, 
And I suspect those cases, people were extremely close to each other for a, a prolonged period of time, like at a concert or at a rally or something like that, whereby you can be that close to somebody in such a, you almost create your own confined space by, by a significant population. As long as you've got even adequate disting and, and movement of air, especially in outdoor rural environments like upstate New York, um, you, would, you would expect significantly improved results out, outdoors. I see. So outdoors is literally hundreds of times better than many buildings. Yeah, literally. Um, all right. Thanks, Mike. And our third panelist um, is Cliff Davidson, also a professor of engineering at Syracuse University. Uh, among other subjects, uh, Cliff is a well-known expert on aerosols, which are tiny particles or droplets that float in the air for long periods of time. So Cliff, what's your recommendation about one response a teacher might have to indoor air quality? which is opening windows in their classrooms to try to dilute virus particles that are floating around in there. Okay, thank, thanks very much, Eric. Uh, so um, I think that one uh, can think about opening windows um, as a means of uh, getting closer to the way situa the situation is outdoors. When you have uh, a lot of air flowing past, you've got air motions, uh, and therefore you have uh, dilution occurring. Uh, as Mike just mentioned, uh, anything that you can do in order to dilute the concentration of the virus uh, is, a, is a good thing. Now, uh, of course, um, there are a number of caveats. On this. Um, if, uh, if your classroom has windows that, that will open, um, there may be other problems that develop. For example, uh, if there are loud noises outside, um, opening up uh, the windows can, in fact, help the airflow in the room. Um, but the uh, the noise uh, from outside uh, might be a distraction uh, to the students. Uh, in addition, if there's a lot of traffic right outside the classroom windows, uh, then um, you may be getting a, a lot of vehicle exhaust. And while, while that's certainly not uh, coronavirus, um, and, and in fact, uh, any kind of outdoor air is likely to dilute the coronavirus, you nevertheless might be bringing in air uh, that is loaded with vehicle exhaust and is, and is therefore uh, unhealthful. And sometimes opening up the windows can just be a distraction for students. Um, another uh, point that can be made is that if, if uh, your classroom um, ha is on the corner of a building and you can open up windows that are on two walls rather than opening up windows just on one wall, that's going to enhance the airflow because uh, you'll have the cross flow, air going in through one set of windows and going out through another set of windows. Um, if you just have uh, windows on one side of the room, you may want to open the windows, but in addition, if you're able to open the door to the classroom, uh, that may also allow cross flow of, of air. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that you can do to take advantage uh, of the fact that uh, when you open windows, you can in fact have, uh, have dilution of the virus, and that's always a good thing.
Eric, we can't hear you. No That's audio. There we go. <laughs> now we can hear you. All right. Any case, um, thanks very much. Let's now enter into the more complex subject of how uh, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems in buildings uh, can affect airborne transmission of, of COVID-19. This is complicated for a variety of reasons, one of which is no two schools or buildings have the same systems. Um, and most of us really don't know a lot about this. So I'm going to direct, direct a related question to Mike Wetzel. So Mike, what are a couple of the questions a teacher could ask a building manager or a school administrator about a building's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning system that would help them appreciate uh, the situation regarding COVID-19? Yeah, thanks. Um, I guess the, the, the first and most fundamental question that I would ask um, a teacher, have a teacher ask their, their building management is what kind of HVAC do I have in my room? You're, you're really going to have two fundamental types. One I'm going to call forced air, which means there's, there's diffusers. You can actually see in my screen behind me a small diffuser. There's diffusers in the ceiling and you actually have an air movement. So the heating and the air conditioning is accomplished by conditioning air that then is recirculated through the room. That's called a forced air system. The other system that you might have is radiant. And radiant was more typical in older buildings. I know the school that I grew up in, we didn't have any air conditioning. We only had radiant heat. Radiant, you might um, know as baseboard. Um, it can be hot water, it can be steam. There'll usually be some kind of large unit underneath a window or along the wall wrapping around the, the room. And that is gonna be a heating only system uh, managed by um, water or um, steam. So I'd ask the question, forced air or radiant? If um, they answer forced air, that means you will have some options. Um, you, you could ask them then uh, if we can increase the filtration that's on that system. Any forced air system will have some filtration on it. It'll be a fairly coarse uh, level filtration standard. And what you're gonna wanna do is increase it to the level that the system can tolerate it. We can't just stick a HEPA filter in an existing system, it will never push the air through it. And you will have you will create other issues because you'll reduce airflow so much. But if you could get to a MERV 13 or a MERV 14, that would be very significant and have a sig significant improvement. Um, one thing to know about viruses is they're extremely small, but you don't have to have a filtration of the size of the virus to catch it because for the most part, viruses move attached to other particles. And so people sort of miss that nuance often. They talk about, oh, COVID is so tiny. It is, but it's gonna float through the air attached to a larger particle. And so by reducing particle concentration in the space, you're gonna be reducing the number of COVID part, COVIDs that are also floating around attached to those particles. So getting up to even a MERV 14 would be, would be fantastic uh, in increasing filtration. Um, the, other, the other thing I would then ask them is, can we increase fresh air? It's going to be the same problem. It's, you're not going to be able to just go wide open and have 100% fresh air into an existing system. It won't be able to tolerate it. But if you've got a, me a mechanical uh, forced air system, there will be a fresh air um, path, and it's very likely they can open up those dampers some and help you uh, increase fresh air. Um, the third thing I might ask them is, what about humidification? Um, a lot of forced air systems um, are centered on just cooling and heating, and that's it. Um, very few people um, went about and put humidification in. And um, there's a lot of data that shows that a virus is much stronger 
in dry conditions than it is in normal humid conditions. Keeping humidity at 40 to 50 percent um, um, is worse for the virus. The virus will die off quicker than if you're at 20 percent. And you know, you get into winter around here in upstate New York, and it can be very dry. And so, adding humidification, trying to get to 40 percent uh, relative humidity. Again, if you're in a forced air system, you can usually add that to it and um, improve the indoor air quality. Um, if you're on a radiant system, you're going to have to look for other solutions. Um, a radiant system, you're not going to be able to do any modifications to a radiant heating system that are going to help indoor air quality. You're going to be reliant on adding devices or opening windows. You're going to be left with um, not being able to modify that uh, particular piece of mechanical equipment to improve indoor air quality. Can't hear you again. Questions, Mike. I have to unmute myself. Um, those are great questions. And uh, MERV 13 is uh, the technical question we should ask about filters. Okay, well, um, let's move on then. <clears throat> so, of course, most, as Mike just said, most buildings now have central forced air systems that draw air from each room, uh, hopefully filter it, and then blow it back into the building. So, I'm going to address the next question to uh, Jensen. Um, What's known about whether a virus particle that's sucked out of a room through the central air um, ventilation system um, will still remain infectious after it's passed the system and then re-entered the building? Well, I think uh, uh, this, this is a legitimate concern. And uh, if you look at the, the airborne transmission, if you have air recirculation, if you don't have filters, in a typical building, it would take 12 to 15 minutes for the contaminants generated from in one room that can transmit to another room in the same building, in the same central air conditioning system. But unfortunately, there's a, we have some filtration. Uh, it's not, not, not enough, but uh, we have like most six or seven filters. They still filter out some particles even the cost one. So it has a chance to reduce uh, the, the virus uh, concentration in space when it travels through the system. The, in terms of the data, back to your question about whether there is any actual data to show uh, there's a HVA system actually transfer the virus by one net. And so far, I haven't seen such data. And uh, one piece of information uh, uh, from the, the diamond uh, princess, uh, the cruise, cruise ship and, uh, in Tokyo, I think uh, everyone probably knows that. And uh, the people there, after the passenger has been quarantined, and during that period, there's a uh, uh, number here. The, there's a 552 people out of 2,666 uh, passengers has been infected. So, and, but all these people, the infected people, are from the same room, like infection happens in the same state room. Okay, so which, which indication that particular instance, HVAC did not help spread the virus. So it's more about the, uh, uh, in room person uh, to person spread. So I think the what it, what it means that uh, that particular ship 
we still have fair amount of ventilation, outdoor ventilation, and uh, and therefore the HVAC itself did not uh, spread the virus. Now, of course, in, 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 the, in the situation we are now, we are uh, reopening the schools and uh, just following the minimum standard is not sufficient. And I think, as Mike mentioned earlier, if you have a central air conditioning system uh, with air with recirculation, uh, we need to use a, a higher grade uh, filters like uh, I recommend MERV 14 or HEPA filters. And of course, you have to really look at the air flow rate and how much air flow rate uh, the system can drive through. It's not only the efficiency, the efficiency of the filter times the air flow rate through the filter that give you equivalent of the ventilation rate. Okay. Uh, thanks very much, Jensen. So uh, the good news, at least in certain conditions, is the HVA systems are not spreading the virus, um, at least in that particular case. Um, now, another option for uh, buildings, and in particular for ones with radiant heating, uh, such as Mike described earlier, would be to install small portable air purifiers. Uh, they vary in price a lot, but and to install these small ones uh, that would just be in one room in a classroom. So I'm going to address this question to Cliff. Um, what's known about the potential value of these purifiers uh, for protecting uh, students and teachers in classrooms? Sure. Um, I think that's a that's an important question, uh, particularly as we move uh, from the uh, the summer and early fall season um, to the uh, the winter season when it's going to be a lot colder outside and um, the teachers do not have the option of opening windows uh, and, and so. Um, perhaps a portable air purifier uh, could be used. Um, there, there are uh, a number of uh, air purifiers available that, that can do quite a bit of good, but uh, there are also some, some caveats along with those. Um, as we just heard from both Mike and, and from Jensen, filters can be effective in removing uh, the, the coronavirus from the air. Particularly, um, Mike mentioned that uh, the coronavirus actually attaches itself to other particles, and oftentimes those particles uh, are uh, large enough that they can be easily removed by filters, uh, efficiently removed by filters. Um, however, uh, these uh, portable air purifiers um, need to be located in the classroom. Uh, where they can be most efficient in removing the virus. And uh, in general, in a, in a classroom setting, you do not have uniform concentrations of the coronavirus throughout the whole classroom. You've got higher concentrations close to any sources of the coronavirus. And in this case, um, if you have students in the class and uh, one or more of those students uh, has uh, a coronavirus infection, then they will be a source of uh, those viruses. And uh, as a result, uh, you want to put the uh, portable air purifier 
not way in the back of the room away from people, um, but rather uh, in the vicinity of students um, who may be uh, um, a source of that virus. Uh, and of course, that could be a challenge because the air purifier might be noisy. There's always a uh, some kind of an active fan uh, to move air through the filter. Um, there's usually a pressure drop across the filter, and that that requires um, a a fan that has a certain amount of power associated with it to make sure that the air, uh, as it's moving, can overcome the pressure drop uh, and and get through the filter. So as a result, these air purifier fans can can be noisy. Uh, so that's that could be one problem. Uh, but you also want to think about uh, the fact that uh, the air purifier needs to process as much air as possible in a short period of time. And therefore, uh, you probably want to use it uh, on uh, a relatively high setting if if you can, and that's where it's most likely to produce a lot of noise. So uh, there may have to be a compromise between having a, a high flow rate, but yet making sure that the noise uh, is still um, tolerable. Um, another another issue uh, is that um, these uh, air purifiers have um, uh, various uh, attachments or ways that you can use them. Um, definitely, um, air purifiers with HEPA filters would be uh, the best idea, or at least uh, any kind of high efficiency filter. Um, and uh, there are also HEPA, I'm sorry, there are also air purifiers um, that have uh, ultraviolet treatment with, with uh, UV, uh, UV energy. Um, and a lot of them even advertise that this can kill viruses. However, the difficulty is that uh, there has not really been um, enough research to know things like, gee, how long uh, does the ultraviolet exposure um, have to be focused on the coronavirus before it can kill uh, a large majority of those coronaviruses. And so as a result, um, there's, there's a lot more uncertainty associated with say ultraviolet treatment or UV treatment, uh, while with filters, at least we know that the filters are able to remove the, the, the coronavirus. So uh, if, the, uh, if the noise problem can be kept in control, um, and if the purifiers can be placed in the vicinity of where the students and teachers are, uh, then, then it can do some good. Thanks very much, Cliff. Um, okay, let's, let's uh, move on. But yes, so there's an option if you can uh, manage the noise and other issues. Um, so um, I think we're running a little short on time, but I did want to ask uh, the last couple of questions. So uh, Jensen, um, plastic partitions are being uh, used in stores to separate customers and employees working cash registers from their customers. Um, what's your view about the use of these partitions in classrooms? And 
try to be brief. We're running a little short on time now. Sure. Yeah. Personally, I would recommend the use of partitions which provide a physical barrier to reduce the cross-contamination between people. And however, it has to be used integration, I mean, in, with a air distribution. So the room should have, should be well ventilated and have good air distribution to make sure each partition space can still have sufficient ventilation. So I think uh, one message I'd like to get across here is that we should not be looking at a single measure. We should look at an integrated measure. Like we talk about outdoor ventilation, good air distribution with the partitions. I think uh, with the part another advantage using the partition is then the student do not need to be six feet apart. If you have partitions, I think the partition is more effective than six feet. It can be three, four feet apart. And as long as you have the partition and have uh, sufficient ventilation flow rate uh, for each cubicle. Okay, great. Um, and then uh, the last of our pre-prepared questions I'm gonna ask Mike in uh, just a second. Uh, but do send in uh, the listeners, do send in your questions. We'll be selecting um, as many as we can to answer for the, uh, to ask the panelists to answer. And uh, uh, we may be able to answer some of those offline after the uh, forum is over. So the final question that we prepared in advance is for Mike Wetzel. Um, but just beyond the sort of things we've been discussing, uh, what are a couple of other simple things teachers could do that you'd recommend for classrooms beyond more difficult air management problems we've been discussing. Um, so we're, we're an essential manufacturer, which means that we've been able to stay open this entire time since COVID broke out in our country. Um, and early on, we sort of teamed up with several other essential manufacturers here in upstate New York to sort of put together procedures and policies. Or how do we keep our employees safe? How do we actually stay open with this disease running rampant through our communities? and keep our employees safe and collect. I think there was 10 or 11 of us in total companies that band together to develop procedures and processes. Collectively, we oversee a couple thousand employees. And um, I should say, knock, knock on wood, to this date, we don't have a single secondary transmission amongst our employees base of a couple thousand employees. And we've been operating, all of us have been operating straight through since uh, March. And so you know, I, I'm not gonna talk about masks and social distancing because that gets a lot of press. I think the one that gets the least amount of press that um, we really had to think about was eliminating common touch points. That's a, that's a big one. And, and in a school, you're gonna have a ton of them if you really start to think about it. So for example, one of the things we did in our facilities, we blocked open every door we could block open. Every door that wasn't a fire hazard or a bathroom door or something like that, we blocked it open and instead of allowing it to close so that you didn't have the same person, you didn't have people repeatedly touching the same door handle to open or close a door or to open or close a cupboard. Um, so I would think about that. Think about anything you can do. Maybe a teacher is the one that has to open the door. All the students leave between classes and all of them come in and then the teacher closes it. So that's only one person touching, touching the door. Then think about shared items, shared pens, shared whiteboard markers, um, lab equipment in your chemistry lab, musical instruments in in that um in that area of the building samples you know remember in school we used to pass samples around the room oh look at this right um you've got to eliminate that uh anything where someone's going to repeatedly touch something 
Um, if they were to sneeze on it or breathe heavy on it or cough on it or sing toward it, um, they're going to laden it up with a virus potentially and then just move that to the next person. And so I would really think about those, those common touch points. Drinking fountains. We had to shut down all of our drinking fountains because you've got people touching them again and again. So you, know, you really take some thinking and walking around. I mean, we had to take salt and pepper shakers out of our cafeteria. I mean, it's, you don't really recognize them until you really start looking for things that people are going to um, commonly touch. I, I would say that's a big one. And then the other one I would, I would urge schools to do because of rotation at the desk is you're gonna to have to clean the desks every single time students leave and you turn over to a new class. I mean, here, at least in an office, our off, our desk is our personal space. And so I'm the only one that will sit at that desk. And so we, have, we can be less sensitive to it. In a classroom environment, you're gonna to have to really pay attention to that. All those seem like very practical suggestions. Um, so thanks very much. Okay, that pretty much ends the pre-prepared uh, question. So we're now gonna uh, switch to questions which have been coming in from uh, uh, listeners. So I'm gonna pick one, let's see, this one I'm gonna send to Cliff. I think it's similar to one we already answered, but we'll go ahead and, and just let you reprise. Have there been studies that demonstrate that uh, the COVID-19 virus can be transmitted from, through a centralized ventilation system, room to room transmission? Um, so maybe you could answer that quickly. I think we already touched on that previously. So I'm going to ask Cliff to answer that one. Okay, uh, sure. Uh, so uh, actually, um, I believe that uh, it was uh, Jensen um, who discussed an example uh, of, um, a, uh, of a of a ventilation system uh, that uh, was that did not carry. Um, the coronavirus effectively from one room to another. Um, and uh, there obviously are a lot of details that one has to look into here, like uh, are there filters uh, in the HVAC system um, or, uh, um, or is, the, uh, is the path uh, of the HVAC system uh, a very long and tortuous path uh, as opposed to just a direct connection? Um, if it's a long and tortuous path and if there are filters present, then that all um, uh, basically decreases the chances that the coronavirus will be able to pass through uh, the, the HVAC system. All right. Since, since we'd already addressed that question um, in our previous discussion, I'm going to go ahead and cut that one a little bit short. Uh, so here's um, um, an interesting one. Um, so this is addressed to Jensen. I sit in a lobby area. Would it help to keep the virus away from me as students are walking by if I had a fan behind me blowing air away from my desk? Just a simple <laughs> ventilation fan uh, sold at uh, stores everywhere. Yes, I think uh, uh, this is like a local, assuming that you, uh, you where the airflow coming from. If you have a fan with a filter that actually filter out the, any possible virus, yes, that will help you reduce your chance of getting a, you know, infected when someone passes by. Okay. Uh, so it certainly has a dilution effect. Now, if your this virus come, if you don't have a filter, you don't know. You may because you don't know who has the virus going air from person, right. you know, has virus. 
right? So a fin without a filter is is questionable. Let's put it that way. Um, let's see. This one was addressed to Mike from uh, from an audience member. Uh, we get contacted by salespeople daily offering all sorts of air cleaner systems, ionizer, ultraviolet, electrostatic, and others. How do I decide what works and what doesn't? And what does a salesman have to be able to show me to uh, demonstrate that the system will actually prevent COVID-19? So you must have been dealing with lots of that uh, at Air Innovations. Yeah, and, and uh, th that's a hard one. I I'll be honest. Um, I recognize there's a lot, as Cliff mentioned, there's a lot of solutions out there. Um, and some involve just electrostatic um, as a means for enhancing a, a medium to to act like a HEPA filter. And unfortunately, as, as far as I understand, all of those have to be tested too. And so there there isn't a common standard that you can point to and say, well, they all meet or exceed standard XYZ. Um, and so in particularly with air cleaners, that's a bit of a problem in the market. Um, I would tend to lean toward those that are based on more traditional technologies, such as HEPA filters. HEPA filters have been around, they were invented to, to, for the gas masks initially. I mean, they've been around for a long time. It's very well known. It's very well documented. We know what they do. We know they're going to remove very small particles. We know the virus travels attached to those particles. And I would give preference to those that have a HEPA filter and a UV. Yes, it's questionable how much exposure you have to have to a UV, but if a UV is resident in with the HEPA filter, um, the HEPA filter might um, slow down the particle for uh, a long enough time where it gets exposure to, to sterilize the particle. So um, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion on electrostatic filters. Some of them create ozone and ozone has its own problem. It's a controlled substance. And so you've got to be very careful. Uh, I think when you go down the electrostatic path um, with the technology, because unfortunately there isn't um, a standard that they all have to be certified to. Um, and the other thing I would, I would make sure that you ask is what kind of airflow are we talking about? Um, if it's in a large classroom and it's only generating uh, 200 CFM, you might not be getting enough air exchanges to make it worth your while. And so you're gonna really wanna get the air to start rotating in that room. And um, it might take several units. I mean, classrooms are big, they're not tiny. So just sticking one little unit of a couple hundred CFM in a corner will, will make you feel comfortable, but isn't gonna improve the air quality. And so it might take several. And I, I'd be looking to try to get, you know, five or 10 air changes an hour. And um, you just have to do the math, the, the size and the amount of air it's producing. Um, and um, but yeah, I, I would be unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for you, but it's you do have to be careful with that because there are a lot of things out there that may not do that much good. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, let's see another question. Uh, well, here's a very simple one. Uh, the audience member wants to address this to Cliff. So, how often should HEPA filters be changed? Ah, uh, okay, so. Um, th this is a good question uh, because um, eventually uh, a HEPA filter is going to have um, particles of all kinds, not just coronavirus particles, but any kind of dust uh, will build up on the HEPA filter and then um, the, uh, uh, the pressure drop across that filter will go way up and that means that the air flow rate will go down so you won't be, as, you won't be filtering as much air. Um, uh, however, um, the, the reason that this question 
uh, is not a simple one to answer, is that um, it depends where and what kind of environment you're using that HEPA filter. If you are in a, a dusty environment where there are a lot of particles present, uh, any this can be any kind of particle. It can just be dust, dust particles. It could be uh, pollen, uh, any particles at all. Uh, that HEPA filter is going to um, become uh, um, filled up, uh, you might say, or at least uh, develop a high pressure drop uh, much more quickly than if you are um, in a in a uh, location where the particle concentrations overall are much lower. And, and in fact, I can also bring up the fact that um, one thing you have to be very careful about is when you are changing uh, HEPA filters, uh, because there is data uh, available that, that suggests that the coronavirus uh, can uh, remain alive on a HEPA filter um, for hours or even days. Uh, and therefore, you want to make sure that when you're changing the HEPA filter, um, you are uh, wearing uh, a, a good mask uh, and uh, you are also uh, wearing gloves so that uh, you don't get a lot of the uh, um, coronavirus-laden particles on your hands and so forth. Uh, so uh, one has to be very careful about this. go back on okay thanks very much uh, that's uh, helpful and uh, good practical advice uh, the next question coming in uh, was directed for Jensen what about ceiling fans ceiling fans okay yeah the kind that just blow air yeah. around the room yeah I think it has it has an impact it can help mix the air and in a way so most uh, Air distribution system uh, are designed as a mixing ventilation. So if I have ceiling fan, it will enhance the mixing. So in average, one would be reduce the concentration. And uh, but however, it's, it's for everyone. It also it's a sort of it will because of the mixing. But one person was infected in the room. It can that virus can be mixed in the air and spread very quickly to the rest of the room. So you you're looking at uh, positive side it has a good dilution for everyone, but the negative side you have this spread. So from infection to full point of view, I would suggest not using the mixing, and uh, that's why earlier I recommended partition. And you try to uh, send the open partitions to create the cubicles for individual and try to introduce air from the below is the best. Okay. Uh, the next question is coming in from Mike. This has to do with ultraviolet. And the listener wants to know if uh, indirect upward pointing or at the ceiling UV light um, is wise in an occupied space. So you'd use a high level of UV, but in in a room, but try and keep it out of everybody's eyes, I guess. Um, anyway, do you have an opinion on that, Mike? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, actually, and you you see a fair bit of that now in in some environments. 
Um, so one thing to know about UV, UVC, uh, in particular, it has to be UVC, right? Um, and it is very harmful to humans. It'll burn your retinas. Um, you'll have one heck of a tan in a couple of minutes. Um, it's very dangerous um, to, to, to have direct exposure to UV, which is the reason why it can be used to kill viruses. But for it to work, it has, it's all about intensity and direct exposure. So if you were to shine a UV bulb on a round surface, only the surface that saw the UV is going to be sterilized. Anything in the shadows underneath is not going to be sterilized. And so one of the challenges with using a ceiling um, UV system is it's only going to help what it sees. So if it's shadowed from the majority of the room and somebody has this confidence that, well, we have this UV in, and so therefore all of our desks are now sterilized, they won't be. And so you have to be very careful about inducing a, a sense of self-confidence that we've got this UV system in there and it's doing everything it can because it can only um, sterilize a virus if it has prolonged and direct light exposure to it. Anything indirect, it won't um, have any efficacy. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, one final question, I think. Here we go. Uh, this is um, uh, sent to all, any panelists, but I uh, will randomly pick uh, Jensen, I think. Let's see who had the most recent question. Jensen, Mike. Nope, I'm going to pick Cliff. So, is there any recommended air exchange rate or flow for moving virus loaded air out of a room and fresh filtered air back in, which I think amounts to how many air changes per hour um, is good, better, and best? Well, I mean, the easy way to answer that question uh, is, is that you, you want to get rid of the virus as quickly as possible, and that means that you want as high of an air change rate as possible. Um, I believe that uh, Mike referred to um, a, a value of five to 10 air changes per hour uh, as being reasonable. Um, and I, I would agree. I, I think that uh, if you are in a classroom and you can increase the uh, air exchange rate to five to 10 air changes per hour, um, then you're probably uh, doing a reasonable job of exchanging the virus-laden air uh, with, with fresh air. But in fact, um, if you can get even more air changes per hour and you are sure that the fresh air coming in does not have any coronavirus, then there's no reason not to go higher than that. Uh, so uh, you want as high of a number of air changes per hour as, as you can possibly get. I think the five air changes per hour is equivalent, okay, clean air delivery rate of five air changes per hour would be, would be sufficient, assuming that everybody is wearing the mask. So I have to emphasize the, because wearing the mask, you reduce the source, it's very important. If you don't do that, even you have 10 air changes per hour, it will not be sufficient. Now, this is based on the analysis uh, uh, risk analysis, uh, uh, a similarity between a coronavirus and influ influenza. They have a very similar, what we call the uh, 
a spread rate, an RO number is between two and three. So, uh, and based on that analysis, you know, if you can reduce the source by masking, wearing a mask, and uh, with the five air changes per hour, that will give sufficient uh, a reduction in the risk of infection. Let me just, uh, uh, I think that's it for the questions. I just will throw in uh, one using my privilege as the moderator. Um, you'd mentioned the importance of masks. So five air changes per hour is probably fine as long as the infected person in the room is wearing a mask. Roughly speaking, how much do you think a mask helps reduce the virus load in a room, roughly speaking? I know there's no one number yes, you can know. Yeah, it's uh, the, so it depends on, again, there's a different type of mask. If it's cloth, there's a study shows that cloth covering give you 50%, the 50% efficiency for the small particles. Uh, the surgical mask give you 75% and N95 mask will give you 95%. So if you look at that number, you basically will say, okay, normal mask will reduce the risk factor by a factor of uh, risk of infection by a factor of two. And then the, uh, the surgical mask will reduce it by a factor of five and so on. So, uh, right. So from the point of view of, of air management, uh, if people will wear masks, we can reduce the number of air changes per hour through a good filtering system by an amount two for a cloth mask, um, maybe 10 for um, um, an N95 mask or something like that. Right, right. So, so basically, so sort of integrating, I look at this issue is a, is a system problem and not a single measure. Let's say you look at the a couple of things, wearing a mask reduce the risk at least by a factor of two, right? Just common mask, 50%. And you double your ventilation rate, outdoor ventilation rate, and you reduce the number of occupancy. So that you basically, let's say by half, which means you increase the ventilation rate per person, right? So because the ventilation rate is specified based on the occupant. Okay, and then you have, if you have recirculated air, you apply those filters, that give you another reduction by a factor of two. So you put all this together. Uh, my assessment is uh, that you be fairly, you very quickly get to the risk, uh, risk reduction by a factor of 10. So if we can reduce the risk by a factor of 10, from the existing standard, okay, because the existing standard already have certain ventilation, but by integrating the source control ventilation and air filtration techniques, which are typical for indoor air quality, and we can reduce the risk of infection by a factor of 10, and that give us uh, some confidence to the safety of the open. Okay, thanks very much, Jensen. Okay, we're pretty much uh, out of time for today's uh, Syracuse Event Center of Excellence uh, Research and Technology Forum. Um, the, we are planning that the forum um, has been recorded and will be posted as a uh, podcast, and we'll be sending a link to the registrants for today's forum. So I wanna thank uh, Jensen, Mike, and Cliff, our distinguished panelists, and behind the scenes, uh, Kerry Marshall, Tammy Rosanio, 
Laura Wilson and Paul McCarthy, who have all been working behind the scenes to bring this off. So thanks very much to our panelists. Thanks to all of you as listeners. Uh, have a good day and uh, good health to all of us in these extraordinary times.